Welcome to it, folks. Thanks for listening to the Planet LP podcast. This is episode 93. And Keith Creighton from Poptos is here because we're going to talk to musician Nat J in this episode. Hi there, Keith. Welcome back to the pod and Happy New Year. I don't think I've said yeah. Happy New Year to you yet. Happy 2024. Oh my gosh, yeah. it feels like the vista is clear and open and who knows what kind of musical journeys we're going to take this year. I hope it's as adventurous as it was last year because last year proved to be a really great year for music. I was so impressed when I went and I sort of reviewed our list, not just the best of, but I went through every episode and looked at all the artists that you had very carefully curated and, and featured. And I added mine here and there. And I thought, it's pretty solid list last year. I had some good artists, some great music that had come out. So here's hoping 2024 is just as strong, if not stronger, right? Yeah. And my big thing was the one regret that I have was not placing Nat J's EP in my top 10 albums list. Cause I was like, okay, I'm going to do an entire list on EPs and one-off singles. And oh my gosh, you know, the daily grind gets in and I haven't done right. it yet, but oh my gosh, when we talk about Nat J's new EP, it was among my best albums of the entire year. It was really, really good. And I guess we both have to do the walk of shame then because it didn't jump on my list either. So here's a audio version of the walk of shame. Let's just be quiet for a moment. There it is. That's the walk of shame. So Nat J's, we mentioned, she's a Canadian musician whose songs have been featured on several TV shows. I mentioned that up front because as many of you know, or have listened to this podcast know, I'm a guy who made his living working in radio with a big chunk of time in music radio. That's the way people used to be introduced to new music or even older music that they were experiencing for the first time. Well, then came MTV. And if you're up in Canada, then came much music in the 80s, uh, mid 80s, around 1984. And both these channels help bands and artists radio was generally ignoring find a new audience. Well, that was then, and this is now, and now it's a very different landscape. People still listen to the radio. They still watch videos, but it's on YouTube now. Playlists are curated, sometimes by humans, sometimes by machines. We stream audio through our phones, through our computers, through our devices. We watch TikTok. Uh, when we go to the movies, maybe we are hearing a, a song and we pull out our phone and we shazam this thing to figure out what the song is. We watch TV shows where there are a lot of bands and artists that we don't know that are featured. And that in a nutshell, is how a lot of people find music these days. So if you're a musician, how do you make a career in a landscape like this? Well, Nat J has been able to do so. She's been releasing music since 2007 and has been able to navigate this current music business landscape in a way that is unconventional, but to me, very savvy. Her latest EP, it's called Turns Out It's Not the End, was one we featured on this podcast in episode 86 of the Pop Dose New Music Report with Keith Creighton, who you heard just a second ago. Nat is also a very smart business person whose knowledge of how to get music featured on TV shows has been shared with students at Langara College in Vancouver, BC. And she also has a self-paced course that offers, well, anyone who is in the music business how to learn to navigate this landscape like she has. So, Nat J, welcome to the Planet LP podcast. Wow, quite a resume there. Hello, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. We are thrilled to have you. Uh, I've been reading up on you, and I said this at the outset, 
very, very unconventional. Your your career has been. First off, congratulations on the new EP. I hope you're getting some good reactions on this release. The album again, or at least the EP is called Turns Out. It's not the end. So to say that the music business has changed is, is a huge understatement. You started your career around the time things changed. So what did you think your career would be like when you first started? And what was the reality? <laughs> it, ha- it has changed immensely since I first started out in 2007. Um, the first demos I recorded were, you know, I burned and sharpied a whole hundreds of CDs to give out to people. Um, that's definitely not what's done now. <laughs> I have um, boxes of of uh, of unsold CDs sitting in my storage room <laughs> uh, that that indicate that change. You know, I thought that that would be you know how music was, and that I'd be touring, that I'd get signed, and and um, that that would be my main source of of income. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's definitely turned out very differently, um, because yeah, I don't sell any physical merchandise anymore. Um, I haven't even printed any for the last few albums and I pretty much sit at home making money now. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not bad. I'm not, I'm not complaining cause I, I am a bit of a homebody. Um, and I've been an independent artist my whole career, uh, which was also not expected. I've released all of my own music and been self-published and self-managed, uh, and uh, it's it's worked out it's worked out pretty good. Which that brings us to the new Netflix placement, "My Life with the Walter Boys," because I can't think of even beyond that placement a song that's more appropriate for where we are right now, because most of North America is under blizzard conditions this week. And so the song that they picked up was "I Will Keep You Warm," which is actually off the My Gateway to Nat J, which was the All I Think When I Wake Up album, which came out in 2014 and was one of my top five records of that year. So how did that placement come together? First of all, I can't believe it's been 10 years since that album came out. I mean, that's nuts. It also kind of goes to show like how this career that I've had of getting music placed really has longevity because this song that's 10 years old just got placed in an amazing Netflix show. That particular show, uh, My Life with the Walter Boys, the music supervisor from that show is here in Vancouver. Um, Her name's Natasha Dupre. She's become a really good friend over the years too. She has been really supportive of um, local music in particular, but also just Canadian music. So she makes a real effort to connect with with indie artists um, in this country and especially in this city. She was working on this and she contacted me and said, I have a placement for you. I, I don't know if it's going to happen, if it's going to go through. Let's sign the deal memo and and see. She hoped it was going to go through because it was a big placement. It was sort of end of episode. And it was very featured in it. Uh, and so she hoped it was going to sort of get through the next stage. And it did in the end. I ended up having to wait over a year to actually see it uh, happen because of the writer strike. Everything was very delayed. It, it ended up being the biggest placement that I've ever had. What was kind of interesting about that is the first placement I've, I ever had ha- up to that point had been the biggest placement I ever had, which I got in 2007 and which didn't air to, till 2008 because of a writer's strike. Oh my um, gosh. So I thought that was wow. a kind of cool, like yeah. full yeah. circle thing that happened. Um, that I, I just had to wait an extra long time for this amazing thing that launched my career. And that has sort of, I feel like, reinvigorated my career at this point. Um, I'm sort of at a very different stage than I was back then. 
it's been amazing to see the results of the fan interaction and my Spotify listeners skyrocketing uh, all from this this song that I recorded it actually in 2012 and released it in 2014. It's pretty amazing to see the the longevity of of that song and see that it still connects with people. Been it's been a kind of a crazy ride the last couple months. Racing through your head I know, yeah, I've been there, my friend It all works out in the end Try to find me when the wind begins to blow I'll be the one to bring the sun your Netflix will put a series up on a particular day, and then how long did it take the water to boil until you started seeing your Shazams and your streams go up? It was pretty immediate. It Within a week, I know it went up by 10,000 or something monthly listeners. For the first few weeks, it was going up twelve to 1,500 listeners a day. I think it peaked a few days ago, and finally, I guess everyone's gone back to work and they've stopped binging Netflix <laughs> after the holidays. So it's finally started to come down. But, but well, and just for comparison, my usual monthly listeners is about 3,000 steadily, and I peaked at about 33.5 thousand monthly oh, wow. listeners. Yeah. Congratulations. How does that work in terms of, is it a one-time placement fee? For or does it the more the the show streams, do you get more revenue? It's a bit of both. So when you get a song placed, there is an upfront fee that goes to the owner of the publishing rights and to the owner of the master right, and that's a one-time fee. These days, in the past, it, it would just be for a certain time period, and then they'd have to relicense it. But nowadays, they do it in perpetuity, what they call it. So basically, forever and ever, amen. And uh, so you get that one-time fee, and then you do get royalties every time that it plays. Th- this is a, a complicated discussion that's ongoing these days, because when you when it airs on network TV, you get a whole lot more money than than uh, when it airs on streaming services. Uh, The law hasn't quite caught up with technology, big surprise. And um, and royalties, I I don't know what it's going to be like. Um, The royalties from a streaming service are nowhere near as big, Um, but I will get some, yeah. You know, that reminds me of what's happening, obviously, here in the United States as well. Artists say the same thing. If your song is played on terrestrial radio, you get a bigger chunk essentially because if yes. you wrote the song you're going you know your ASCAP and BMI royalties are going to be bigger than they will be on the streaming side of things but you were talking about this deal you made essentially with with a couple of TV shows and the word sync licensing is something that is probably not known to many musicians or anyone listening to this <laughs> podcast, but this is something that you have used to create an income stream for yourself in lieu of touring because you don't like to tour very much. 
So sync licensing is one way in which a lot of musicians that are not only established in the industry, but up and coming can find a way to get an income stream much like they maybe used to do with regards to radio. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the term sync licensing is something that I teach in the very first lesson. It's like the very first few slides of, <laughs> of my courses. Um, and yeah, so for people who don't know, um, sync licensing or music licensing, uh, it's the process of synchronizing music to moving picture or film and TV. When you're licensing it, you license your music to the production. So about 99% of the time when you hear a song on TV or in a movie, that music hasn't been sold to that production. It's been licensed by whoever owns the copyright to that song uh, and usually non-exclusively. So meaning they can license it to other productions as well. And there's a fees associated with that. And yeah, and that's basically what I've built my career around. And for me, I mean, it's in my opinion, more lucrative than touring because touring actually costs a lot too. There's a lot of costs involved in getting in a van and traveling across the country and staying in hotels and paying band members and, and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and sync licensing, there there are no no costs involved I mean, besides creating the actual music, but you have to do that before touring as well. So barring barring creating the actual music, there are zero costs involved in in connecting with a music supervisor and pitching your music, getting it placed, signing a, a license, and watching it on TV and watching <laughs> the money come in. So it's it's a great source of income, especially for indie artists, uh, if they know how to do it right. And and that's what I I teach a lot of artists how to do. Your music is very cinematic. When the muse strikes you with a song, are you almost thinking about where? it might be able to be placed like what type of scene or what type of production or do you just live in the moment with a particular song and let it take you where it takes you you know this is a question that i get a lot from other artists too i make a conscious effort not to think about it um because the first placement i ever got was one of my very first demos um it was a song we recorded in a day in a storage room it was sort of a rough mix unmastered track And it got a massive placement on an ABC show. You know, I didn't know what I was doing back then. I wasn't trying to make, I didn't even know that sync licensing existed. And then subsequently, the songs that I did in my first album, a lot of them, I think it's my most licensed album. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just having fun. I was new to songwriting. I was just sort of feeling the moment and doing what felt good to me. And so that that obviously works. (laughs) What I was doing worked. So I decided to you know, make a conscious effort not to think of those things and just sort of honor, you know, what I was feeling as an artist and what I wanted to create. That's what's worked, I think, because it's something that's meaningful for me. And I think it connects with others and it connects with other people's stories. There's definitely certain elements to my music that make it more adaptable for sync. And that's things like universal lyric. So I, I tend not to use a lot of very specific places or people's names or that kind of thing. I, I make it sort of a bit more ambiguous. But that was more because I wanted other people to be able to sort of attach their own story to it. I didn't want it to be too specific to me. Um, so that was more of an artistic choice. You bring up a really good point because one of, and Ted and I have talked about this on previous podcasts, as much as that I'm not going to you know, say anything bad about these artists because I actually love them and I buy their CDs, but like for your Taylor Swift's, your Ariana Grande's, and even your Olivia Rodrigo to some degree, some of the songs are very specifically targeted to exact events in their lives. 
And so the fans are like, oh my God, what is she singing about Pete Davidson? Or what does this mean anything about Travis Kelsey? And with Driver's License, everyone knew it was a very specific song about Joshua Bassett and Sabrina Carpenter. And that kind of added to the thrill of kind of voyeuring on the celebrity life. And I think about like your songs, two of my favorites are Built a Wall and Love Me Too. Both of them came tag team right off of All I Think When I Wake Up in 2014. And those still hit me like a ton of bricks because they really soundtracked my life, what was going, I was going through at that time in the mid 2010s. And it still hits me on that deep emotional level. And so that's why you, you really, really nailed it. Do you talk about the the celebrity element to it? That's something that the indie artists have over them is that nobody knows who I'm talking about in my songs, <laughs> uh, luckily. Um, and I just get to express them. And for me, you know, they come to me in different things over different times. Sometimes I don't even remember what I was thinking about when I wrote a song. And and they, the meaning for me changes over the years. And I hope it does for other people too. And, and they connect with it differently at different times in their lives. I'm flattered that it connected with you, Keith. You've always been such a great supporter. I'm happy that it can be meaningful for other people in a way that it obviously was for me when I was writing it at the time. I guess I won time I guess I pulled out of yours and somehow it just filled up mine I don't know how and I don't know why but I guess I won this time I guess I brought it down music featured on television shows and making connections with music supervisors and understanding what sync licensing is. These are all things that a lot of musicians just don't get any kind of introduction to when they start either pick up a guitar, start playing the piano or whatever, playing drums. They're not thinking about the business side of this. But when I think about how you've done this, the connection you've made with a music supervisor, how that led to more music being licensed in the in the sync licensing form it reminds me a little bit about how musicians used to try and meet music directors or program directors either through conferences or going to the radio stations and and doing introductions that model doesn't exist anymore or at least that opportunity doesn't exist anymore but how difficult is it to actually make these connections. I mean, you said that you kind of lucked into it, but now you're teaching courses on it. So it seems to me that there are music supervisors that are very open to meeting 
artists and saying, I want to hear what you have, because I think if you have the right type of sound that we're looking for, we could get it placed in this particular film or in this TV show or even in a commercial. Yeah, you're you're totally right on that. And, and you know, sometimes with the sort of radio model, that does exist for more major artists, I would say, mm-hmm. that are more mainstream that fit the radio mold. But for a lot of indie artists, that doesn't exist. And it can be difficult to connect with music supervisors if you don't know how to do it or where to do it. Yeah, that is one of the things that I teach other artists too. I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to music business. I like learning about it and I like I like um, law and I like contracts and all those kind of nerdy things. Um, <laughs> and for a lot of artists, it's it's over their head and they really, they couldn't give a, a crap yeah, about right. it. <laughs> they just yeah. want to make music and play music and sell music and and that's really all all they want to do. But these days we are especially as indie artists we are a business. If you want to have a career uh, as a musician, you have to think of yourself as a business. Learning about those things is very important. I will say that there's not a lot of resources available to learn about sync licensing and that's sort of one of the major reasons that I decided to create courses on on that that really sort of laid it out for people. One of the things we talk about is how you can connect with music supervisors. And places like conferences are a great place to do that. We have an amazing conference here in Vancouver. The Vancouver International Film Festival actually has a whole music and film element to it called AMP. It used to be open to everyone, and now you actually have to apply to attend it as an artist. They, they do all sorts of development and they bring in music supervisors from all over the world, um, but many big ones from LA. It's run by um, a local guy, Rob Calder, as well as Tony Scudellari, who is the, I, I don't want to get his job title wrong, but he's basically the head of music supervision um, and creative stuff at, that's not the that's official term. That's a great term. title. Head yeah. of creative stuff. Creative stuff. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Um, yeah. For Sony Pictures in LA. Uh, And he's taken a real interest in partnering with Rob to create this event for artists to attend here in Vancouver. And people do come from all over to attend it. And they do bring in an amazing roster of music supervisors. And they provide a lot of opportunities for the artists to connect with those music supervisors. The biggest part about building those relationships with music supervisors, for me anyway, has been understanding how the sync process works. Mm -hmm. If you just go there and you meet them and they like you, that's one thing. But one of the reasons they hesitate to work with indie artists is because indie artists generally don't know what they're doing when it comes to sync. They don't understand their copyrights and who owns them and have agreements between their co-writers and, and things like that. And they also don't understand the process, the workflow of a music supervisor and how they can fit into that. They work on very strict timelines. They work with film and TV and music is, is often the last thing to go in. And film and TV have very sort of last minute deadlines sometimes like, oh, we couldn't clear this one song. We need another song. We need it quickly. So to be able to work quickly with a music supervisor, know what you're doing, know exactly what they need and to be able to fit into that workflow and and understand that that's something that has allowed me to to maintain and grow my relationships with music supervisors. One of my biggest supporters has been Natasha Dupre, who's the local music supervisor I mentioned before, because she knows that she can come to me and that I'm going to give her exactly what she wants. She knows that I'm going to have all my copyrights together. I'm going to have all the files that she needs and that I'm going to sign everything quickly and send it back. And I may have a question or two, but that's okay. Um, I'm going to work 
quickly for what she needs. And so that's like, that's a big part of, of understanding, um, of building those relationships is really understanding what they need. Yeah. It sounds like you got your, you have to have your business hat on. So you, you've got to know things like deliverables and contracts and all the things that you were talking about earlier about digging into the law, about the, the nature of contracts, about what's in them. And so you have to put a little bit of a different hat on. So I could see why artists in the past, if you will, or even indie artists in the present moment, they just don't think in those terms. They're more focused on the music. It's almost like these two entities, these two people are not speaking the same language. So if you put a music supervisor and, and an indie artist together, and the indie artist doesn't speak the same language, essentially, yeah, exactly. or the same dialect, it's going to be like, well, I don't think we can really work together because we're not really communicating. You don't understand what my needs are or how my workflow is going. But exactly. And so yeah. when I, you know, when I meet music supervisors, I make sure to always slip in a few key terms so they know that I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely helps to have you a one-stop shop. Cause I remember I had a clear theme to fame when I did an indie film. And it was just going to be on the festival circuit and we paid 800 bucks for the clearance, but it was amazing all the steps we had to go through to get that song cleared, not even to play the song, just to have our character sing the song in the movie. Oh, wow. It's kind of nice that you could be a one-stop shop because I always wonder mm -hmm. when you see some of the credits, like on a Beyonce or a Dua Lipa song, and there's 27 oh. songwriters that are listed. And it's yeah. like, okay, how do they possibly clear that? Or can they not clear that? Because they have to split up that penny into so many different micro pennies. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes they they do have trouble clearing it. And that's part of a music supervisor's job too, is to advise the production on, first of all, we can't afford that. That's, can, that's not within your budget. <laughs> and also to say, well, how about five of these alternatives from indie artists that sound sort of similar and that are much more within budget and that are much more easily cleared? And this is what I always tell indie artists is, is one of the major things that we have going for us is that our music is easy to clear. And you mentioned the term one-stop shop. That's one of the key qualities of an indie artist that music supervisors do like. And, and that means that the music supervisor can go to one place to clear all the rights, to get all the permissions that they need to, um, because most indie artists own or control all of their rights. Whereas if they have to clear that Beyonce song and they, they need to go to all 20 of those writers and their publishers to clear it, it's going to take a lot more time. Whereas feasibly they could clear a, an indie song within the hour kind of thing. So this is something that, that indie artists really have going for them if they've got their stuff together. Yeah, I was thinking, I was listening to just an hour ago, Can't Get You Out, which is the lead single off that one album that I just can't get enough of, all I think when I wake up. And it does have an Alanis Morissette vibe. And so I could see if the film called for a 90s Alanis Morissette kind of empowerment vibe, it would be great. Plus, you know, the Can't Get You Out of My Head, it speaks to being lovelorn and being in love and what it's like to have that kind of connection. So I could totally see people saying, oh, yeah, if we can't get that song, we could definitely get this song. And it would really resonate because it would also sound fresh to the ears of the listener. That's interesting that you say that has an Alanis vibe to it, because I feel like that was a bit of my transition song. Um, because it had some electronic elements. We brought someone in to, to had some electronic elements to that. And that was sort of before I connected with my current producer and started doing more electronic pop. So uh, that's funny that you bring up that song. So Ted, why don't we listen to a little snippet of that so people can get a vibe of what we're talking about. This is Can't Get You Out by Nat J.
That was Nat J. And we're going to play some more music from you because, as you said, Nat, you own the copyrights to it. You own your masters. So we are, we are not in copyright violation because we have permission from the artist to play some of these clips from these songs. So yes, you do. I wanted to, uh, to sort of dovetail into a clip that's not music-oriented, but rather to play you a clip of a YouTuber, Rick Beato. Rick is a pretty accomplished musician. He's a teacher, songwriter, producer. He has a pretty popular YouTube channel. I watch it often. He's got like almost 4 million subscribers. Now, he recently posted a video, and in it, he talks to a friend of his, a guy named Jim Barber, about how radio and rock music has changed from the early 2000s to around 2012. But I think you can kind of fast forward that or bring it right up to the present, because there's something in this clip that I think you're probably going to recognize that is... Uh, well, something that happens in this industry all too often. Here's a real problem for me. The stations are being controlled by people who don't live in the market and don't actually have to listen to what's going out over the air. So you get these records that are all mixed to sound the same. And if you start listening to a rock station in Detroit or Cleveland or Atlanta for two hours, if they're playing new records, they all blur together. Well, first of all, a lot of them were produced by the same people and they were mixed by the same people. There was a handful of producers that produced all the rock records from you know the late 90s on until about 2012 when rock music completely died. They were not only produced by this handful of people, then there was a handful of mixers. When I say handful, I mean less Four. than five. <laughs> <laughs> So sometimes you would listen to the radio and you'd hear 20 songs in a row that were all mixed by the same person. And they could have the same drum samples, the same everything, same bass sound, same type of compression. If you're doing your testing for your radio station in your market, you're all of a sudden discovering that, wait, I have to play records that were made before 1995 to get people to not turn my station off. It wasn't a oh, the bands are all terrible situation. It was records don't sound very good on the radio anymore. So people are going to go back and play older records. And that is in a nutshell, what happened to me while I worked in the radio industry. I started hearing way more sound alike albums or, and songs. And I was like, my God, are these songwriters or, or the people that are creating this music all the same people, like a small group of people? And and it's, it turns out, yes, <laughs> generally, uh, for the for the hits, they were chasing a trend and they just wanted like, give me that Nickelback sound. Come on, let's bring it on. Some more of that. And you as an indie artist probably are like maybe laughing and saying, yeah, I, I see that or I hear that often. Just any comment of what you just heard from uh, Rick Beato and his friend Jim Barber? This is still something that happens in a, a lot of the mainstream kind of genres. It happens a lot in pop. Everyone's trying to copy each other and a lot in, in the country world too. I mean, I've sat in writing rooms with country artists and they're they're all trying to get to a certain goal. They've got a reference that is usually like a big track that's hot at the moment and they're trying to replicate it in some kind of way. I will say it, it happens on a, on a sort of much, much smaller level in the indie world sometimes because- mm -hmm. There are a handful of mixing and mastering artists who will get onto like all of the 
the indie ones because you know it's a it's kind of a cliquey it's kind of a cliquey industry mm-hmm. and uh everyone wants to you know work with the whoever mixed that record and and then all of their friends want to do it as well so especially in canada i will say it's a it's a tiny industry compared to the states and there is a handful of people who uh will master albums so you kind of know like you know i can pick out three that i know that the majority of my friends have had their albums mastered by that person Gotcha. Um, across the country. Uh, you know, there's one in, in Toronto and there's one in Vancouver and everyone sort of knows who those people are. And I, I would say that, you know, that's one of the things that I've sort of lucked out with, with my current producer, Ovi. Uh, he is kind of a little unknown gem <laughs> in the indie world anyway he comes from the the pop world where you do make everything sound the same and for him working on something like my music was very different for him where we were not trying to achieve a hit record or copy something that was current the current trend he was really able to do something that he's never done before which is use some of those trends i, I sort of rely on him for knowing what sounds cool cuz i don't know but he was able to sort of make it his own and turn it into his own art which he's not really able to do it's very constricting in the more mainstream genres and i think that's one reason why hopefully my music stands out because i i you know i work with somebody different and also i'm kind of doing my own thing i do sort of what i what i want to do and i work with who i want to work with and I've been really lucky over the years to have people who have been great artists and who have who have honored, you know, what I want to do as an artist. And I've stuck with those people who have supported me in that way. But I can see that it, it is a cliquey industry. And if you get the jobs, then you just keep getting them. And it's difficult to break in for, for those who, who haven't, you know, made the right friends yet. Well, I have to say that the, the EP turns out it's not the end. Only six songs, not just only, but six songs. And they're varied. It's not the same style throughout the entire experience. And that's what I really liked about it. I just came away thinking, when I first heard the the first track, I was like, okay, so I guess it's going to be more of the same as the EP progresses. And it wasn't. And I thought, oh, wait. And I started paying more attention because it was more varied. And I thought, well, this is really good. And then I played it again and I started connecting it with it more. And I think that that's my point, and I think that was probably Rick Beato's point, is that you need a lot of variety. And if you keep working with a, a small group of people and those people just create the same sort of sound over and over and duplicate it, it just becomes wallpaper for the ears. Nothing really stands out anymore. It's not to say that the songs or songwriting is bad. It's just that the way in which it was created sounds way too much like somebody else. So how do you really stand out? It just sounds like you're you're playing one artist with you know varied vocals over and over and over again. And that, I, I will, that's what makes for a very boring listening experience, at least in my opinion. I will say that that's one of my sort of biggest complaints about a lot of artists too. Like I'll hear one of their songs and I, I really love it and it sounds amazing. But then you listen to the album and you're, you just get a bit bored because it, it sounds the same throughout mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. and they're good songs on their own. But when you put them all together, it gets a bit boring. We made a conscious effort to do different things on this album. The story, well, kind of behind the title too, the, the stories that I was going to walk away from music, this was going to be my last output as an artist. Oh, wow. um, so we decided, well, let's just do whatever the heck we want. Who cares? Like, let's just go in and have fun and get inspired by whatever we get inspired by. We took a really long time to make this album too, even though it was only six songs um, due to, you know, life, COVID, all sorts of things. 
so each day we would come into the studio. Um, I, I work a bit differently with this producer than I have uh, with my past producer. Um, with my more like acoustic pop stuff, I, I worked with one producer, Winston Hosschild, um, where I would be writing all the time with my guitar and then we would go in and do pre-production and we would go through this folder of songs I'd sent him over a few years and we'd pick out the best ones. We would sort of figure out how they were going to be produced and we'd bring in a band and then we'd do that. Um, but with my current producer, with Ovi, we actually go in with nothing. We go into the studio in the morning. We don't know what we're going to do. I create like a inspirational playlist on Spotify of things that I think sound cool over like a few months or a year. And we go through the list and we pick out a song. We're like, this is a cool sound. Let's do something that is sort of like this, or let's get inspired by some of the sounds from this. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he starts to build a track and I sit there sort of waiting to hear that formulate. And then I start writing what's called the top line, which is just the lyrics and melody. By the end of the day, we have something that's resembling a song or the start of a song. And we, we did that throughout the, the course of this album. We just, you know, we picked very different things, so sort of much more poppy stuff, um, some more indie sounding pop, some like cinematic, like very epic, big drums kind of um, there was one song that we we listened to in particular and um, some more like R&B sort of solely jazzy stuff and some like really fun, like kind of more disco inspired. There's this kind of a, a new disco wave that's coming out right now. And we, we found a lot of that really fun. And so we would just pick something different each time. And, and we sort of didn't really care that they didn't sound similar and my producer just kept assuring me that it doesn't matter that they don't sound the same that you're what's going to be common to all of them so your sound is going to bring it together and so I just sort of trusted in that and um and it, and it kind of worked and even mm. even the the title track um I actually came up with the title before I wrote the song <laughs> I named the album uh in the fall and then we decided to axe one of the tracks that I didn't like and I needed to write a new song really really fast um, and so even that one, uh, which I thought this album title is a great song title too. So I wrote the song and it ended up uh, being one of my favorites on the album. And, uh, and, and it sort of summarized uh, everything that had gone on with my musical journey over the, over the course of making this album and sort of coming to the decision that I, I wasn't done yet. Well, let's play nice. a little bit from that title track. This is, turns out, it's not the end. Nat Jay. It's just a night. Nice. I mean, yeah. I had no idea yeah. you were going to quit, not quit the music business, but that was going to be your last 
album, that this yeah. one was going to be the last one. I hope that's not the case anymore, <laughs> that you're still going to go forward and keep creating music. Yeah, I plan to continue to create music. I don't know if I'll do another album. I feel like that might be a bit of an archaic thing to try and do these days and difficult to fund as well. I've been very lucky up in Canada to receive grant funding for all of my recordings. And I'm I'm a bit granted out of the system now. Um, I, for my three of my albums, I've received what's called the Juried Sound Recording Grant from Factor, the foundation, the foundation Assisting Canadian Talent on Recordings, which is through the Canadian government and private radio broadcasters as well. And I, I'm allowed to have three of those in a lifetime. And I've, I've had three. So yeah, I'm a little bit granted out of the system now. So it might be sort of on a, a as I can do it basis and, and working with my producer, or we might, or we, we've talked about also creating sort of a, a new project together as a duo, which we kind of are, but I'm sort of fronting it as Nat J. So who knows well, what go. the, what form it'll take, but. So you and Ovi could have a band and then get three more grants as the band. Yeah, possibly. I think so. <laughs> We'll have okay. to see. I've got to read the fine print. Okay, there you go. Because you mentioned on the back of your album cover, you know, you thank Factor and also you thank Department of Canadian Heritage, the Canada Music Fund, and also Canada's private radio broadcasters. And that does bring up kind of the difference between a Canadian artist and an American artist, because I grew up in Cleveland and Toledo, where we could hear Canadian radio stations. And it was an opening to hear bands we would have never heard otherwise, because back at the time, and I'm not sure if it still is today, Canadian broadcasters had to play a certain percentage of Canadian artists. And therefore, we were able to hear all these bands that we would normally wouldn't get played on American radio stations. Is there still an output for you with Canadian radio? Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is CanCon, Canadian content. CanCon is is a still a thing uh, in Canada. They they are required to play a certain amount of Canadian artists. I will say though that it doesn't really help indie artists a whole lot. You know, most of radio is mainstream, so they are mostly just playing a lot of Nelly Furtado and Michael Bublé and okay. stuff like that. So, um, and Canadian content can also mean you know produced by a Canadian or I, I'm not sure the exact definition, but okay. it doesn't have to be the artist that's Canadian. It could be like a certain percentage of of one of the creators or something like that, or the songwriters even. So but yeah, it doesn't necessarily help indie artists too much because yeah, they're not getting on mainstream radio anyway. But the this country does have a great support system for its artists, which is a big thing that's different from American artists for sure. We're very lucky to have grant funding. It's difficult to get, but if you if you're good and you know how to get it, it's available to you at many different levels as well. It's available, like I mentioned, uh, the big one factor which is a mix of the Canadian Heritage Fund, so the Canadian government and private radio broadcasters. And I should say in where, where radio does come in is, is in parts like that, where radio broadcasters and TV broadcasters, I think all of them have an, an obligation to give a certain amount of money back to developing artists. So there's, I can't, I can't remember what the funds are called, but but like all radio stations, so it can be through a, through a fund like that, or it can be a, a radio contest, or it can be administered through a music industry association, like like through travel grants or something like that. Um, so we do have at the highest level from the Canadian government. There's also the Canada Council for the Arts, which is also the Canadian government, on a sort of more regional level. Um, each province has an arts council. Usually we have the BC Arts Council here in British Columbia, as well as an organization called Creative BC, 
they started by funding um, film and television stuff. And that's their reason why a lot of things get filmed up here because there's access to funding. Uh, and they created a whole uh, music sector called Amplify BC that has many different grants that are available to artists for recording and for marketing and for travel. And even here in Vancouver on a local level, Creative BC administers some some grants on behalf of the, the city of Vancouver as well. And I know here in BC it's been it's been amazing. They've they've made a big effort to support a lot of minority groups, uh, like BIPOC artists and artists with disabilities and artists from LGBTQ plus communities. So it's been a really positive thing. Um, in Vancouver here, we also have a, a Vancouver music strategy, which is being administered by the Vancouver Music Task Force, uh, which is like a board of interested parties um, who are trying to liven up the music scene here, especially since yeah. COVID. So yeah, so we have a lot of um, access to to funding here. And I've been very lucky to to get some, I, I kind of a master at the grant writing as well. I have, I've had clients in the past. I have one client now who rely massively on grant funding, who tour across Canada and who tour across Europe, uh, the fugitives. They have a new album out right now, actually. Um, and they're my good friends and, uh, and yeah, and they, that's part of how they make their income. They, they, that's how part of how they make their touring very lucrative because <laughs> they get supported by, by the government on various levels. And, uh, and then they get to keep more of what they earn on the road. Sounds so incredibly robust. I mean, this is, uh, it's quite yeah. an infrastructure. Nothing, nothing like what we have yeah. in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Like last year, some of my favorite artists, you know, beyond Nat Jay was Louise Burns, who used to be in a band called Lilix, but now is putting out solo stuff, as well as the Trans Canada Highwaymen, which all used to have major label deals and are now foraging on their own as indie mm -hmm. artists. So it's just fascinating to see what's happening north of the border. And Nat, you even Very turned me on to another artist during some of our conversations leading up to this podcast. Who are some of your favorite Canadian artists that are bubbling up? I ter probably turned you on to Noah Dirksen. Was that who? Yeah. Oh my God. That was an amazing song. <laughs> Noah's voice is like, it's like velvet. It's amazing. And I, I met Noah. He, he went to school out here. He went to UBC. So I met him when he lived out here. I met him because he volunteered. I was looking for volunteers to work the door at one of my album releases. And he volunteered to uh, work the door. Um, and then I met him and he was just like such a lovely guy and we got to know him. And then I heard him play and I was like, oh my God, this guy is amazing. And so I invited him to join me later that year. Actually, my last ever show that I played, cool. um, I played with, uh, he was, um, he was a guest uh, at that show. Um, and he's just grown immensely over the last year, I would say. He's doing everything on his own too. He lives out in Winnipeg in Manitoba. Um, that's where he's from. Um, but I think he also has dual citizenship. I think one of his parents is American, so he's able to easily hop the border for touring, and he's been touring a lot. He's released some fantastic music over the last um, year. He's kind of embraced, rather than the folky side of him, he's kind of embraced the country side of him. And and I feel like he's kind of a mix of like a Ray LaMontagne kind of like really silky voice with like a Chris Stapleton kind of he's got some like R&B licks and song his songwriting is just like really on point and it's very like it really like sort of reaches into the depths of my soul when I listen to it yeah this brings up a nice little sidebar because since Nat doesn't put out a lot of her albums on physical I have the physical of all I think when I wake up 
I go to Bandcamp because I'm still old school. You know, I have a really nice sound system and it doesn't sound as good when I plug my phone into a cable into the sound system. And so I buy her tracks on Bandcamp where then you could download WAVE and FLAC files. And I noticed Noah has his entire catalog. You could buy everything he's ever recorded for 20 bucks Canadian, which is about 14 American. I'm like, there is a deal. Then you can burn your own CDs and then I play it in the car and I play it on my home stereo and it just sounds phenomenal because there is a little something extra that comes from a high fidelity file playing on a really good sound system. So that's the way I like to hear my Nat J. Do you get a lot of revenue through Bandcamp or is it mainly streaming these days? It's mainly streaming for me. I feel like Keith, you're you're unique in how you like to listen to music. You're you're just like you need to hear it in high quality. Unfortunately, these days most people don't know or care <laughs> yeah. how, how it sounds any different. Um, and they just, you know, they're listening to it in the background or they're listening to it while they work out and, and they're not too concerned about it. So most people are listening through streaming and they do like their own kind of compression on it, like through Spotify and stuff. So it does, it just doesn't sound quite as good. Um, for those who are a bit pickier, there's Tidal and I think that's more hi-fi. But those are also like your your real big music fans that are into that. Um, so no, I, I don't get a ton through Bandcamp. I did notice that Keith bought like all of my albums recently on Bandcamp and I really appreciated that. <laughs> yeah. The old so, so. arc of the CDR. I still am old school. I love my CDs. And so He's great. one yeah. man, one man uh, economic stimulus, right? There. Yeah. yeah. You, know, <laughs> you know, most of my, most of my fan base is between like 18 and 27 or something. So they're just, they're just not interested. So I just, I don't really try. <laughs> I don't try yeah. to get them to buy it because most of them wouldn't even know what to do with a downloaded file anyway. So I just, I go with what, what they want. <laughs> I give the people yeah. what they want. <laughs> so it breaks my heart. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about streaming. It was thought of as a way to decrease file sharing and music piracy. Streaming was supposed to be like, oh, now look, we, we, we're just going to stream the audio. You get it through these devices or your computer screen or your computer and uh, the money goes to the artist. So we're not, you know, we're not, there's no file trading at all. But because of a uh, recent New York Times piece that uh, Keith brought to our attention, this has been hacked by bad actors who are making money from other artists' music. So Keith, since you were the one that shared the New York Times piece that was published on January 13th of this year, why don't you set it up in terms of what exactly happened to these two musicians? If you go to the New York Times, the headline is their songs were stolen by phantom artists and they couldn't get them back. And it's the story of Bad Dog, which oddly enough was a musician duo that actually works in the legal sphere within the entertainment world. And it pointed out something interesting that's happening because right now bad actors can actually create basically noise files. Just imagine like what your, your sound machine would make where you're trying to sleep. It could either be white noise or rain or something like that. They could just put enough of the file online on Spotify. If it gets its full play, you get the, the royalty. And so they put these phantom files and they bury them on Spotify. And then they train bots to play those files over and over and over again. And therefore, they start generating revenue on songs that don't exist, that aren't listened to by anybody. What they've done is they've now amped this up. And they've been raiding like SongCloud, where singer-songwriters kind of put their own files up to get feedback, to share with others. 
what they're doing is if those songs have not been licensed or, and Matt would know the, the true terms in terms of getting your publishing rights together, if they get the song file to Spotify before the artist does, the bootlegger can claim ownership of the song, even though they posted it with a different artist name and a different track title. And so what happened to Bad Dog was they wanted to create some CDs to sell at the merch table on their tour. And when they sent the files to disc makers, disc makers said, nope, someone else owns the copyright to your tracks. They own the publishing. And these guys were completely shocked. And then it turns out each of the tracks that they had posted to SoundCloud were put up on Spotify with phantom artists and t- artist names and title names. And it took a lot of legal engineering to get disc makers to prove that they actually own the songs files. Nat, I don't know if you, do you put a lot of songs still up on SoundCloud or what is your process in terms of protecting your songs the second you create them so you can know that you have the publishing? I mean, this article blew my mind, I have to say. Yeah. Um, first of all, the actual practice of what what these bad guys are doing, <laughs> but also the fact that their victim in this article are two lawyers, one of whom specializes in like IP law or something. Right, like um, digital like copyrights. Digital, digital copyrights or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah like it's, it's his yeah. area of specialty and he, and he got screwed by these little gremlins out there. I do have music on SoundCloud. Um, I will say that it's, it's never the first place that I put it up. Uh, I'm pretty secretive these days about the music that I release. Don't really put it up anywhere for anyone to hear it before release day this article made me sure of that practice even more Um, as much as some artists don't want to feed the the machine and maybe they don't want to put their music up on these streaming platforms and they, they want to be kind of more indie about it and put it up on Bandcamp and SoundCloud and things like that. This shows that you just kind of need to do it as part of the process um, even just in ensuring your copyright. So this is a really bad look for SoundCloud too. This article made me want to tear everything down off there. I would definitely focus on just releasing everything on the the main streaming platforms before sort of sharing it on on some of those other smaller platforms because I feel it sounds like they're targeting it, they're targeting those artists and it, it sounds it just sounds like a disaster situation that they're in because you know they said they were able to fix some of it but some of it they're not our intellectual property is all we have <laughs> our copyrights and the fact that we own them that's you know that's our bread and butter so whatever we have to can do to protect it from people like this who are are trying to exploit that then that's what i would always just put it up on the major streamers first mm-hmm. before putting it up on those tiny ones and and hopefully hopefully i i it was interesting to read that there's a there's a a company i think it was called BeatDap or something that is working at combating these these fraud cases, and they're based here in Vancouver. So I thought Ooh. that was really interesting because I hadn't heard of it before. Canada leading the charge again because that's that's what they showed in this article is just the financial value of an original musical song file, and the bootleggers for these for Bad Dog, they said they only made around two hundred and fifty bucks per track. But when you think if that bootlegger could do that to thousands of song files at once, yeah, that's $250,000 per thousand song files. And so it, it, it makes you realize, oh, yeah, just because it's out there and you haven't you know, formally released it yet, people could be taking advantage of that, which is kind of scary. And, you know, 250 bucks is not a lot of money, but and it's probably not a lot of money to these lawyers um, who make, you know, 10 times that in a year. But for an indie artist, 250 bucks it could pay for their next demo that could get licensed to some, you know, it's, it's like a, Mm -hmm. 
every little bit counts for an indie artist. Yeah, I remember creating a little bit of a scandal back in the day because I was writing about Charlie XCX as one of my assigned artists that I was following. And I was writing for both Popdose and popcrush.com at the time. And she posted on her SoundCloud some tracks. And I'm like, ooh, new songs. So I wanted to be first to market to get a review of those songs up. And I put it up on Popdose. Turns out she did not intend to release those. She had, was intending just to share the files with somebody else. And so I got a note from the label saying, hey, those were not public. You know, we've taken the files down, but it was amazing how quickly they got out there. It's interesting because she never did release those. And it's kind of a bummer because I like the songs, but it was amazing to see just how not secure that platform was and the value of those tracks. Yeah. I mean, that's probably a big concern for bigger artists too, uh, for their tracks getting ripped. Well, as we close out, I don't want to leave... On a downbeat note, I thought maybe we would go out with featuring one of your songs, if that's okay. Sure, yeah, that, that'd from, be a good thing. From the EP, tur- turns out it's not the end. You really did like one of these tracks. It's called I Do What I Want, Marlo's song. Talk a little bit before, before we wrap up. Tell us about this song real quick. Sure. It, it's sort of the quirkiest song in the album. Uh, I wasn't sure sort of how it would land with people. Uh, a lot of the people I know who know me have said it's their favorite song in the album. I don't know if it's because they get to hear me play flute on this one, which I don't do very often, um, which is from my past life as a classical musician, or just because it's sort of my personality. There's something about it. Uh, it was kind of inspired by uh, some more like disco-y tracks that we were listening to. And for me, it sort of sums up like what I've done with my career too, is I've just sort of, everyone's told me I should do this, I should do that. But I kind of just take it in and say, well, I think I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Who's Marlo? Marlo is my niece uh, and uh, my six-year-old niece who you actually get to hear at the beginning of the track. That that was from a little recording that my brother took of her in the bathtub. <laughs> she wanted to sing a song for him. And she started out by saying, it goes like this. So it's just a crappy little like iPhone recording, but my, my producer worked some miracles and made it sort of quality enough to include in the song. It really represents her as well in a way because she's like a little unique being who likes to do everything her own way. And she brings everyone along for the ride. She's such an energetic, like overly energetic little six-year-old who um, has just a real clear vision of what what she wants to do in life. And so I, I thought that it was sort of an apt title for her. Uh, my brother played it for her and he said the look on her face was like, how did I get in the song? <laughs> <laughs> and then she said, next time I want to sing the whole song. <laughs> oh, that's the best. Ambition. There you go. Yeah, yeah. you're gonna have a you're gonna have a co-vocalist on that. Yeah. Well Matt, thank you so much for being on the Planet LP podcast. We really enjoyed having you on. Yeah, it's been great to to chat with you guys some more. Um, Keith has always been such a great supporter of mine through Popdose and um, now both of you through this podcast as well. So I really appreciate that. It really helps with feeling good as an artist, especially as an indie artist. And to hear that you guys compare me to all these other big artists as well, that feels really good. And anyone who's listening, like I just want to say feel free to reach out anytime. I'm There's my emails on my website. I'm a team of one, so it goes to me. If you, if you ever want to connect um, anytime. Uh, what's your website address? Natj.com. Very easy. Uh, N-A-T-J-A-Y.com. I might not get back to you right away because I am a team of one, but I will get back to you. 
Yeah, and I just wanted to leave, you know, inviting everyone to, if you based on whatever your streaming service is, really go in and just type in Nat J, get on her platform, because there is so much to discover. We didn't even get to talking about, you know, she has some hip hop on the new EP where she actually has a mm. really good rap break with a guest artist. Yeah. And then one of my other favorite songs is Cover Your Tracks, which sounds to me like one of the best songs Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers never recorded. There's <laughs> something for everybody in that catalog. I encourage you to check it all out. And we Thanks. close out this Planet LP podcast, this episode that is, with Nat J. This is from the EP. Turns out it's not the end. I do what I want. Marlo's song. Thanks for listening, everyone. 